and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by James DeLacy. So James is an outstanding strength and conditioning coach. He has worked across various continents in elite level rugby. Specifically, he's worked in the USA, in Romania and in New Zealand. James is also one of our research reviewers for Science of Sport, which he's done for a number of years, which means he's up to date on all of the latest literature when it comes to strength training. So without further ado, it's time to welcome James onto the show. So James, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back on. Thank you for having me again. It's an absolute pleasure, mate. So uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, so I guess previously I was the head SNC for Romania Rugby. Um, Before that, I was involved in the Major League Rugby in the States. And then I've done a few other gigs before that. Um, Currently, essentially since the pandemic, just been doing my own stuff online and doing a lot of science and sport. And then seeing where it takes me from here, really. Absolutely. Excellent. And we were very fortunate to have your uh, lovely wife on recently as well. So uh, we're getting the, the whole family back on uh, in terms of uh, podcasting for uh, for this month. So uh, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Completely set. Got the, uh, the brain and the athletic talent behind it too. And you've got the, the athletic talent or just the brain? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe half of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So uh, before we start bashing your uh, your uh, physical performance, um, should we uh, should we crack on with some max strength stuff? Um, first things first, we're here to discuss uh, the importance of max strength and uh, yeah, how it could potentially actually be detrimental to some uh, performances. Um, and specifically when you're actually training max strength, not just having max strength, but when you're training it more. Um, so first things first, what is max strength and why is it important? Yeah, it's it's good we actually had this conversation the other day talking about max strength. And I guess we, it'll be good to to have a little one now to send it out to the listeners. But maximum strength, at least in my opinion, is often overemphasized, especially within non-strength sports. Um, but even in strength sports, we're talking about, for example, powerlifting. If you look at a lot of uh, programs, they're not training at maximal strength intensities, which would be considered above 85% of your one rep max. So, for example, big squatters like 1,000-pound squatters aren't squatting over 850 pounds week in, week out. It's just, it's just too taxing. Um, and then within team sports as well, I mean, max strength obviously has its place. For example, being strong does help with general resilience. So we can help reduce the risk of injury just by being stronger. We can tolerate higher training loads. Um, strength generally underpins a lot of other qualities such as speed and power um, to a certain extent um, but obviously um, there comes a trade-off when when a lot of uh, strength training is used over over other modalities of training and I think that's one thing that we should probably emphasize as well Matt is um, we're not talking about that you can't do any max strength or you can't do any strength training because of for whatever reason it's more so when it's overemphasized multiple times a week at the expense um, or doing very little of the other things. So um, in that case, then, like, can you speak to what max strength is when it comes to force development? Like how, yeah, how does that look? Why is it important then to define uh, max strength and how you're measuring it? Yeah, so <clears throat> usually when we when we're talking about max strength, just in general terms, um, I guess we're mainly referring to, to basic lifts like squat, bench press, deadlift. Um, but 
these lifts are more just expressions of force. So when we talk about max strength, we're talking about force production. Um, so if we're actually going to measure max strength or force production, for example, um, using isometric exercises on a force plate, um, the most common one would be like a isometric mid-flight pull. We can get uh, maximum force values out of that. And then obviously when we look at squat, bench, and deadlift, um, we're assessing maximal strength, but within – uh, I guess you could say another a coordinative example. So we may not be able to express, uh, we may not be able to express uh, our potential of force within those exercises just because there is a coordination component to it. Now it means we can still train max strength doing other things such as these isometrics, um, but we're limited when it comes to, for example, squat, pitch, and deadlift. If that answers that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's important very quickly to touch on, um, yeah, the fact that actually what you're measuring is, uh, a skill in itself as opposed to, uh, sport and performance. And yeah, at the end of the day, a skill is a skill. And if you don't practice it, you get bad at it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have the force required to, uh, yeah, maintain your sporting performances. Um, so in terms of then when you're training max strength, right? Like that's, that's fatiguing. That takes a lot out of you. Um, what are the negative effects of uh, high volumes of maximum strength training on sport performance? So when we look at sports performance, so for example, if we're looking at team sports, our, our main objective outside of the skill, the technical tactical aspect is, is usually speed of movement. Um, and speed of movement is trained through, for example, sprinting and other high velocity movements. When we're looking at adaptations to, to heavy strength training we're almost looking at uh, the opposite adaptations to speed so one example is we're going to increase co-contractions um, around the joints when we're lifting heavy so obviously co-contractions are great for um, prevent or min- minimizing the risk of injury it um, makes it safer however co-contractions are not very good when it comes to speed when, we, when we're looking for speed we want um, the antagonistic muscle to relax. Um, and then if we if we go further on that as well, we know that elite athletes or especially elite sprinters are able to relax faster than their sub-elite counterparts. Um, and so when we're doing heavy strength training, another adaptation uh, that occurs is, is we obviously we increase um, muscle activation. So we recruit a lot of muscle fibers, but we do so through the whole, basically through the whole range of movement. So if we're thinking of a squat, we're going to squat all the way down and all the way up. That all the way up is pushing, is going to have that co-contraction, and we're going to have um, muscle activation all the way through. However, when we're, for example, sprinting, we've got these very short time frames. We need to switch the muscle on and off for speed. We're essentially doing the exact opposite when we're when we're loading heavy. And then there's obviously other other factors as well, such as um, shifts towards type 2A muscle fiber away from type 2B um, or 2, 2X. And then we also have things like, uh, low specific coordination. So as we mentioned before, for example, squatting is a skill and we can get really good at squatting under heavy loads and that can detract away from um, doing really well at high velocities. So in terms of then all of these potential negative effects, uh, how long might they last? Like what's the, what's the fatigue level of that, right? So if, you, if you're saying, let's, uh, let's uh, take an example of uh, doing a, a squat or a bench or a deadlift, whatever it is, and you can do five cents of maximal strength training above 85%. Uh, 
um, with maybe one or two reps in reserve. So it's, it's a heavy strength training session. Um, what kind of fatigue are we going to look at there? Is it, is it going to be, um, days, weeks, months? How does, how does that look? I think it depends. It's generally the, the general rule of thumb is 48 hours, right? So like the next day, you're not going to go out and do a heavy training session. Um, generally 48 hours, usually with the deadlift, it seems to be a bit longer, um, just cause it's so heavy and taxing compared to the other lifts. Um, but mo- most of the fatigue ends up being neural fatigue, um, unless you're doing a shit ton of reps or volume <laughs> and then it becomes everything. <laughs> cool. So, uh, with that in mind then, why is it important that we consider the minimum effective dose? Because obviously doing five sets of, of max strength training, uh, across a team sport of maybe 20 people, uh, the adaptive responses to that is going to be vastly different. So why should we consider then a minimum effective dose for an individual? Well, mainly because there's more to sports training than just getting strong or at least maximal strength um, in particular. So you've got you've basically got to fit everything else in there. Um, you've got your conditioning, you have to do your speed, your technical training. Often players are on the field maybe twice a day, sometimes more. Uh, then you've got to fit the gym around that too, and then whatever other commitments uh, the team has. So if you're able to do a minimum amount of volume just to push that needle, it's going to give you more room to move within your programming. You're going to make progress with less fatigue, um, and essentially you're just going to be able to get more out of the players through other areas of training that might be more important. So basically you would potentially in this case have uh, less fatigue from the uh, strength training, but you would still be able to make uh, maybe smaller, but still reasonable and significant adaptations. Is that right? Yep. And and bear in mind that um, you don't have to sit at these high intensities to develop maximal strength. I think we'll get into this in a bit later, but um, training at, say, middle, middle intensities um, between, say, 60 and 80%, and you're just doing the work, you're going to get stronger anyway. I think that's, uh, that's really interesting to touch on in just a second. But when we've considered then the, the minimum effective dose, um, and maybe, maybe later in a, in a case study, we can get onto how we can work out what is the minimum effective dose, because that's very difficult, of course. Um, what's important then of, of training residuals, right? So when, when we're looking at maybe a longer term program, uh, we've got an athlete who we're looking for a, a minimum effective dose, uh, and maybe a maintenance dose. Like how then, how then do we use training residuals? to ensure that we're not always doing max strength and always giving them that, uh, that residual level of fatigue as well. Yeah. So training residuals, if anyone's not familiar, it's Vladimir Isherin's essentially is, I guess you could say a table that, that summarizes um, how long you can retain certain qualities um, from detraining. Now, how it's important when you look at this, that, there's a few, there's, in fact, there's a lot of things that influence these training residuals. So often as strength conditioning coaches, we just take these numbers at face value, be like, okay, max strength, you have 30 days to re- plus or minus five days. Basically, you can uh, go lift and then you can wait 30 days and you can do it again. Um, the only problem is that it's highly influenced by um, a lot of different factors. So one of them being your training age, another one being how strong you already are, um, another one being what you're doing training wise before going into this break. Um, another would be during the break, if you're actually going to do anything. So no one really goes through a 30 day, like complete off period, um, especially nowadays with professional sport. 
So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And <clears throat> it seems that the better trained you are, the faster you lose, basically you lose your gains. Um, the faster you make your gains before the time off, the faster you lose your gains as well. The less trained you are, it seems you retain that strength for, lo- uh, strength for longer. Um, at least in the research, it looks that way. Um, you can see similar changes in at least the anaerobic glycotic adaptations. And then same with aerobic adaptations as well, even though it's <clears throat> a little outside the scope of the podcast, but even aerobic adaptations, which are supposed to you know, be retained for 30 days, they can you can start to see changes within the first week um, in terms of reductions in aerobic ability. So um, while training residuals they kind of provide a little framework, I think it comes down to you lose things a little faster than you think, but then you need to realize that other things you're doing within that time are going to influence um, maximal strength too. So for example, if you go into a detraining break and you're not lifting heavy or you're not doing much lifting, but you're sprinting, you may be doing jumps and things like that, you're likely to retain that maximal strength for longer. So when we, when we look at that in a sporting context then, right? Like there's, uh, there's always going to be some kind of, uh, yeah, high velocity, high intensity action, whether it's running, whether it's throwing, whether it's any kind of, uh, yeah, intensity sport, which you might need that maximum strength for. Um, if you're training that sport, then you are going to get some kind of, uh, stimulus for maximum strength in this case. Um, when we look at that, then how, how much do you think we can get away with in terms of missing out on that max strength and still maintaining it? I think we can get away with much less than we think we can. And I think we can, I don't think we need to be as strong as we originally, as we think we need to be. And when I say as strong, I don't mean in terms of raw force production. I mean, as strong as, for example, squat, bench, deadlift. Um, while these would be considered basic lifts, um, I think we all know athletes that basically are allergic to the gym yet we'll go on the field or wrestle or whatever and we'll absolutely manhandle someone. Um, it's just it's just completely different um, in terms of, you know, they're strong doing that. They produce a lot of force, but they just can't coordinate whatever those movements are. Um, but in terms of how little we can do, like, for example, my research paper from my master's, we looked at a detraining period um, after pretty much at the end of preseason. And we did one strength training session, super low volume, high intensity, one session every seven days. Um, and from that, we were able to see, uh, essentially acted as a taper. So we were able to see some pretty big um, gains on the other side of it, um, obviously because it's influenced by what you did coming into it. Um, but just based on that research that I looked at, anywhere between you could do one session every seven to 14 days even, um, and you would be able to to retain strength pretty well. And it can be really low volume. And by really low volume, I mean three sets of three on a few exercises kind of thing. Cool. So you could pretty much whip in and whip out of the gym for 45 <laughs> minutes um, once every week or two weeks and still potentially maintain your maximum strength. Um, therefore, not having all of that residual fatigue, which uh, is associated with max strength, and potentially then improve uh, coordination in your sport through not being tired the whole time. Is that right? Yep. And that's, and that's without even considering like, you know, if you're doing weighted jumps or any kind of power training as well, that's obviously going to, going to lower the amount of actual max strength work that you need or want to do. 
Fantastic. So when, when we then take our, uh, what you just mentioned is seven to 14 days, uh, and we extrapolate that over to maybe one, one to six months. So then you're talking kind of an, an in-season phase or, uh, maybe a competition phase and uh, a little bit of rest afterwards and then come back into the new season. How then can we look at max strength maintenance? over a longer period of time. And it would be nice now to get like a case study style with some practical examples as well. Yeah, so I think over a season, when you're looking at max strength, you essentially don't really need to touch it that often. Um, You can sit under it, like we mentioned before, you can sit under it and still get stronger, just like, you know, you look at all all the basic powerlifting programs run by the same principles. Um, So over, over, say, six months, if you're in the gym twice a week, you might be hitting whichever whichever lifts you you deem appropriate, anywhere between sixty five to say eighty percent at at relatively low volumes. You could do literally three sets of your main exercise, but before that, you've got maybe all your power work or you're contrasting it or complexing it, um, and it'll be more than enough to to retain the qualities you need. Um, if you wanted to, you could even go more neural in terms of using overcoming isometrics you're going to get big spikes and peak force just from that and you can you can also train rate of force development doing it um and you're not going to incur a huge muscular fatigue um but it could be quite neurally fatiguing so just bear that in mind too but again you can get a max strength stimulus there without without too much muscular fatigue and then as you as you go through the months um, so let's say, let's say that was month one and you've maintained a little bit. Um, is there something that you would do then to change that stimulus as the months go on? Or is it going to be more a case of, yeah, we just measure. We say, yeah, well, they've still got their strength. So that's, uh, that's okay. Um, and we, we're going to keep the same program. Or would you then say, you know what? We need to, to give them a little bit of a boost every now and again. Yeah. You can just cycle the intensities through the months. Um, for example, just moving from first month, second month, maybe uh, touching close to 80% and then come back down the following month. Um, every now and then you can just push up just to just to get a heavy three if you wanted to to reset the numbers you wanted to work off. Um, you don't need to go to, to full maxes. And then that way you can kind of just monitor through your program and you don't have to worry about um, a lot of fatigue from testing or, or touching those heavy numbers all the time. Um, another way you can... You can almost look to to load as just to shorten the range of motion. So you're gonna you're gonna take out a lot of the extra fatigue just because the range of motion is shorter. So for example, performing quarter or half squats off pins, you can get a heavy, heavy axial loading. Um, especially with athletes that that need to feel that. For example, like front row forwards in rugby um, often want to feel you know heavy weight on their back and want to feel like they're they're pushing something hard. Um, that can be one way of doing it without getting too much. Then if you wanted to get that extra range, you could do some lighter single leg work and that can cover the extra range if you needed to. Absolutely fantastic, mate. So before we leave, I want to ask you uh, a question based on some more uh, more like general population principles. So when mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at the gym uh, for like uh, guys and girls who want to get in there, get a little bit stronger or maybe put on some muscle and we're looking at some of the concepts that we discussed today. So for example, the minimum effective dose and, and training residuals. Um, what do you think then, if you're looking at the, the kind of general population, uh, people who want to be a bit more athletic, what kind of volumes do you think that they need to be doing? Because when I look at, at those people, 
for example, I see some of the, some of the stuff my friends do, and they'll be doing like six sets of of heavy strength training. I'm like, mate, do you need to do that? Um, how do you how do you <laughs> see that with those physiological principles that we discussed today? Yeah, for the general population, I mean, shit, they can get away with anything really because <laughs> they don't have anything <laughs> else anything else to do. Um, but it depends, obviously, on their goals. So if if the sole goal is, is something like powerlifting, just to get brutally strong in a few lifts, yeah, they'll probably do a lot more volume. I mean, if you look at the Smolov squat routines and stuff like that, I don't think I know anyone who's done those that doesn't that didn't get sore knees partway through. <laughs> so the the, vo- the volume can be quite high. Yeah, but for the general pop, that I mean, they can get away with less. Most of them just run high volume bodybuilding routines anyway. Um, but if they're looking just to get stronger. Most general population people do too much and that ends up in them not getting stronger. So most strength training routines, uh, most of the time are generally lower volume compared to a bodybuilding routine just because you need to recover between sessions. Um, and then obviously your bodybuilding or hypertrophy routines are higher volume um, in regards to that. So I guess overall on my rambles, general general population generally do too much when they're trying to get stronger. Cool. And one that's just, just come into my head before we, uh, switch off because um, oh, yeah. we will switch off in a second. Um, when, <laughs> uh, when you, uh, when you're looking at youth athletes and you're looking to, uh, either develop strength and maintain strength, is there, are there any different rules that you would, uh, apply there? Because obviously we've discussed this from a, an elite sport perspective. But when you're looking at younger athletes, would you do anything different? Would you look to develop max strength for longer with less important competitions? Would you, uh, give them less because they need less? How does that look? Yeah, I'll preface this with I I don't work with youth athletes to take yeah. what I say with a grain of salt. But yeah, the rules are slightly different. Like at, obviously at that age, they don't have that strength background or training age behind them. So for for athletes like that, it's time time under the bar, time doing you know whatever it is else they're learning in terms of speed and conditioning and things like that. So, um, but then again, at the same time, you're probably not going to load them at you know ninety ninety five percent. Of their of their one RM either, just because um, you don't need to essentially, um, and a lot of them don't don't have the experience to be able to handle heavier loads like that. So, yeah, it's just, it's just more about money in the bank every single session, and then just building up that that account for when they're for when they're older. And, that, and that's not for the coach, right? That's for the athlete themselves. Just before people get confused that you're just stealing from kids. <laughs> Coaches don't get money in the bank. <laughs> That's why we're making podcasts. We're all poor. No, uh, mate, excellent, excellent. Um, so, James, massive thanks for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking as always. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have you on again. Oh, cheers for having me on. Pleasure, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to James for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of mini lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. Of specific interest after today's podcast are probably the lectures on strength and power development. So if you want to access all of that for free, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and you can get that one completely for free for seven days. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to also hit the subscribe button so you won't miss out on next week's fantastic guest. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.